Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schrenkman. Before we start today, I'd once again like to offer you some fashion advice. Why not celebrate midsummer with a new stylish t-shirt from the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop? If your wardrobe is fully stocked, you might also consider a tote bag or a laptop case. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. Perhaps you'd enjoy a coffee mug with the message, wake up early if you want another man's land or life, or a onesie for your baby with the text, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or a decorative pillow for your couch saying, speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. Now, with that bit of self-promotion out of the way, let's get back to the action. Last time, Norway peaked. It happened during the reign of Håkon Håkonsson. He was also known as Håkon the Old, even though he certainly wasn't elderly when he ascended to the throne. He became king as a young boy, and despite the best efforts of the last Bogler pretenders and his own father-in-law, Håkon remained king of Norway for a very long time, 46 years to be precise. Over the course of his long reign, he pursued a policy that brought Norway to its medieval zenith. Håkon not only put a definitive end to the Norwegian civil war that had been going on for well over a century, he also built multi-story stone buildings, had fashionable fiction translated, and expanded Norway to its largest size ever, when he took control over Iceland and Greenland. But when he tried to defend Norwegian control over various islands off the coast of Scotland, he was less successful. Even though, to be fair, it wasn't the Scots, but rather some illness that got to him in the end. But even though medieval Norway may have peaked under Håkon Håkonsson, there was no immediate disaster looming on the horizon. To begin with, the succession was secured, and Håkon's son, Magnus, could accede to the throne without any fuss and without having to fight any other pretenders. Considering Norway's recent past, that's already a kind of victory. Besides, Magnus Håkonsson would not turn out to be such a bad king. Quite the opposite, actually. His successors, on the other hand, well, you'll see. Episode 45, Lomander and Sons. Magnus Håkansson wasn't supposed to have been king. He had this older brother, Håkon the Young, who was their father's designated heir. And even though Håkon the Young died in 1257, years before their father, he also had a son of his own called Sverre, together with his wife, the Swedish princess Rikissa. So it was far from obvious that Magnus would ever rule Norway. But then his young nephew, Sverre, also died only a few years after his father, leaving Magnus, the youngest son of King Håkon, first in line to the Norwegian throne. In 1261, he married Ingeborg, the daughter of King Erik Plaupenny of Denmark, whose reign we covered in episode 40, V for Valdemar. 
Eric, together with his brothers, had presided over the collapse of the golden age of the Valdemars, started by their grandfather, Valdemar I, and skillfully extended by their father, Valdemar II. Eric himself was murdered, and when his widow left Denmark and eventually died, his four daughters, known as the Plowpenny sisters, were left under the guardianship of their uncle Christopher, who eventually ended up on the Danish throne. Ingeborg was only about six years old when her father was killed. We talked about his death in episode 40, and we'll deal more with the mess his murder caused in Denmark next time. For now, we'll focus on what it meant for Ingeborg to have gone from daughter of the king to niece of the new king. The four sisters were heirs to substantial lands in Denmark from their father the king, but the new king, their uncle and guardian, wasn't particularly interested in handing over what was owed to them. This will become important later on in this episode. He married off the eldest sister, Sophia, to the king of Sweden, but that's all he had time for since he died after only seven years on the throne. As I mentioned last time, the marriage alliance between Magnus and Ingeborg was part of the Norwegian king Håkon Håkonsson's attempts at capturing Danish territory, especially Halland. That's why it was so important for him to have his son marry a Danish princess with large landholdings in Denmark. Control over these lands would give the Norwegian crown a foothold in Denmark that the king hoped he'd be able to exploit later. The marriage proposal was sent off to Denmark after Christopher's death, and it was up to his widow, Margaret, also known under the charming nickname Black Greta, in her role as Ingeborg's new guardian, to accept or reject the proposal. There was no denying that Magnus, the future king of Norway, would be a great match for any Scandinavian princess, but Margaret still was against it. She was no fool and understood what King Håkon of Norway was up to. Besides, she didn't want to lose control over the so-called Plowpenny sisters, since controlling them meant controlling their wealth and the land they'd inherited from their father. In fact, Sophia had been married off to the King of Sweden against Margaret's wishes while her husband, the King, was still alive. But she was not going to let another one of the sisters get away. So Margaret refused the offer of marriage, and to make sure there would be no eloping, she packed Ingeborg off to a Dominican convent in Jutland. But King Håkon was nothing if not tenacious, just asks Snorri Sturluson. So in the summer of 1261, he sent yet another delegation to Denmark to try and convince the Dowager Queen to let Magnus marry Ingeborg after all. The delegation, consisting of seven warships from Håkon's formidable fleet, was led by the Bishop of Oslo. But the bishop never even got to meet Margaret. She was off fighting her in-laws, and the Norwegians decided not to wait around for her. Instead, they went straight to the convent where Ingeborg was held. There, the bishop talked to the people in charge and played the old I'm the ranking member of the church hierarchy in this room card, asking them to let Ingeborg come with him to Norway and marry Prince Magnus. Ingeborg herself much preferred to spend her life as Queen of Norway, than as a de facto prisoner in a provincial convent, so she was all for marrying Magnus. But everything had happened so quickly, and she wasn't prepared. She asked the bishop to take his seven ships and return to pick her up once she'd had a chance to pack and prepare for the journey. The bishop agreed, and the Norwegian delegation sailed away. But as they were sailing north, they all of a sudden caught a glimpse of a large approaching flotilla, carrying the banner of Jarl Birger. He was the father of the King of Sweden and, more importantly, a widower in search of a new wife. The Norwegians immediately realized that he was on his way to propose to Ingeborg, despite the fact that she was the younger sister of his own daughter-in-law. Yikes. 
When the Swedes asked what they were up to, the Norwegians answered evasively, and as soon as they could get away, they returned to the convent to snap up Ingeborg and bring her with them to Norway before Jarl Berger's ships would get there. Despite Ingeborg's unpreparedness, they hastily packed her up, her stuff, her servants, and a few Danish knights who had sworn loyalty to her, and they put them on the ship and sailed off to Norway. The first port they reached in Norway was Tønsberg, the same place where Håkon the Young had died four years earlier. They arrived there on July 28, 1261, and rested for a while after the hurried escape. Once Ingeborg was properly rested, they set off for Bergen, where the wedding feast was to take place. Unfortunately, they ran into a storm, and it took them no less than three weeks to reach the capital on the west coast, where King Håkon and the groom Magnus were waiting. When they finally did reach Bergen, the weather was still so bad that they couldn't actually sail into the harbour. That means that the weather must have been really bad, because Bergen is famous for the way surrounding mountains protect the harbour from strong winds and inclement weather. But, after one more night's delay, Ingeborg could make her entry into Bergen. She and Magnus were married on the 11th of September 1261, and the two were crowned directly after the wedding ceremony. The combined wedding and coronation celebrations were the most spectacular party Bergen or Norway had ever seen, even more spectacular than that of Håkon's own coronation back in 1247. Almost a thousand guests had been invited, and they got a party at the Hall of Håkon, one of King Håkon's impressive stone buildings, that was inaugurated on this occasion. As we covered last time, King Håkon died two years later, in December 1263, while on campaign to keep various islands off the coast of Scotland under Norwegian control. Now, Magnus became the sole king of Norway. Magnus's rule brought about a radical change from the aggressive foreign policy of his father. The new king was far less keen on pressuring neighbours or getting involved in foreign wars, including over islands off the coast of Scotland. Or maybe he was just more clear-sighted than his father, and realized that there was no way Norway was going to be able to hold on to the Hebrides of the Isle of Man if the Scots were serious about conquering them. Either way, on July 2nd, 1266, he agreed to the so-called Treaty of Perth, named after the original Perth in Scotland, not the far better known Australian city by the same name, which obviously didn't yet exist in 1266. According to the treaty, King Magnus of Norway gave up control over all claims to the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, and in return, the Scots would fork over a lump sum of 4,000 marks of silver, as well as a yearly payment of 100 marks as compensation to the Norwegians. The Scots also recognized Norwegian control over the Shetland and Orkney Islands. They remained Norwegian for another two centuries or so. In the mid-15th century, Scotland would take control of the islands, but, spoiler alert, by that time, Norway would no longer be an independent kingdom, so they didn't have much say in the matter. We'll obviously cover that story in much greater detail in a future episode. King Magnus also continued his father's policy of good relations with England and Sweden. In the first years of Magnus's reign, the border between Norway and Sweden was officially defined for the first time. Now everyone agreed where Norway ended and Sweden began, so hopefully there would be no further confusion about jurisdiction and taxation rights. King Magnus would actually only set out once during his reign with the formidable fleet that he had inherited from his father. In 1275, the king of Sweden was deposed and fled to safety in Norway. Remember, the now ex-king of Sweden was married to the sister of Magnus's wife, the eldest of the Plowpenny sisters, 
so there was a family connection between the two royal families. This coup d'etat triggered King Magnus to gather his fleet and sail to Sweden to try and reinstate his brother-in-law. Magnus met with the new king of Sweden, who also happened to be called Magnus, because why not? But they weren't able to reach any kind of agreement to solve the situation. The Swedish king Magnus wasn't threatened by the formidable fleet that the Norwegian king Magnus had brought to the negotiations. And in the end, the Norwegian Magnus didn't have the stomach for war. Or perhaps he once again realized that his chances of winning were slim, so there was no point in wasting Norwegian lives and resources in what was essentially a Swedish domestic conflict. Whatever his reasons, he turned home without using the fleet for anything else than transportation. So we've concluded that war wasn't Magnus' forte. But where he really had a chance to shine was in the field of domestic policy, and especially legal reform. Magnus invested a lot of time and energy into promulgating a new law code that would be valid throughout his whole realm. Up until that point, every region had been governed by its own laws, but now Magnus decided that there should be only one law for everyone, everywhere. This was actually quite the innovation, and no other Scandinavian kingdom had a unified national law at the time. In fact, different regional laws within the same kingdom were still the norm in almost all of Europe. Only in Castile and Sicily they had law codes that covered the whole country. For his efforts, Magnus was given the nickname Lawgiver, or Lawmander. In 1274 his new law code was adopted in the various things throughout Norway, and two years later, in 1276, another law code regulating life in the towns and cities was adopted in the same way. So, okay, yeah, there were actually two sets of laws, one for the countryside and one for towns. But still, it was an important step toward legal uniformity in Magnus' realm, including the various islands in the North Atlantic that belonged to Norway. Except Iceland, which had its own law code that deviated slightly from the law in other parts of the kingdom. But, you know, apart from that, it really was one unified national law code for everyone. And this new law code wasn't just innovative in its scope, it was also an attempt at modernizing the content and even basic principles of Norwegian law. For instance, the king's centralizing power was strengthened, and the crown was established as the font of all justice. That meant that crimes committed by individuals were to be considered offenses against the crown rather than against the victims personally. This, in turn, meant that it was up to the crown to punish the perpetrator and the victim or their family was no longer expected or even allowed to set out on a quest for personal vengeance, which had been the normal state of affairs in the past. One organization that wasn't too happy about the new law code was actually the church. The archbishop made a fuss about what he saw as increased royal power over the church and what he and the rest of the ecclesiastical establishment saw as internal church matters. He also resented that the new laws would limit the church's influence over the way the kingdom was governed. So in 1277, a separate agreement known as the Tunsberg Concord was signed between the king and the archbishop. The Concord clarified that the church was still free to pick their own bishops without royal interference. It retained autonomy in ecclesiastical legal proceedings and a number of other traditional privileges that the clergy had been worried they stood to lose under the new law code. The archbishop did, however, have to give up the claim that the Kingdom of Norway was a fief under the Catholic Church, making it clear that the king was sovereign in secular matters. 
Beyond presiding over a complete overhaul of the Norwegian legal system, Magnus continued his father's effort to make Norway a European kingdom, just like all the others, by adopting various customs popular at foreign courts. For instance, he replaced the true traditional noble titles Lentmann and Skutilsvein with the European imports Baron and Knight, respectively. At the same time, he granted his barons and his knights a number of new privileges that they hadn't had before, including the right to be addressed as Lord. As far as we know, Magnus was also the first Norwegian king to introduce ordinal numbers to keep track of all the kings. He styled himself Magnus IV, which is a little confusing since he's known today as Magnus VI. The reason for that is that he didn't count Magnus II and Magnus IV as worthy of a number, and that makes some sense, since both of those Magnuses had short reigns and never reigned alone, only as co-kings. Still, today, in our era of inclusion, they are counted as proper kings, literally, and that's why Magnus Lawmender is now known as Magnus VI. By all accounts, Magnus seemed to have been a capable king. He chose to stay out of wars and instead focused on domestic matters, and he did so skillfully, balancing the interests of the church and the nobility and keeping the peace within the kingdom. So he was good at his job. Interestingly though, he apparently didn't enjoy it. According to the sources, he even complained about the burden of kingship once in a private conversation with one of his nearest men, and he longed for the day when death would set him free of his responsibilities. In the spring of 1280, as he was about to celebrate 16 years on the throne and 40 years on this earth, that day seemed to be approaching. Fast. Magnus fell ill with fever in Bergen and became bedridden. He summoned the Archbishop from Trondheim in order to have his son, Eric, crowned in order to really make sure that the succession would be smooth. The date for the coronation was set for Midsummer's Day, so late June, but Magnus didn't make it that long. On May 9th, he succumbed to his illness and died. Despite not having a proper coronation before his father's death, Eric did succeed him in an orderly fashion. But when King Magnus died, his son and heir was only 12 years old. And you can't really expect a child who isn't even a teenager yet to run an increasingly centralized medieval kingdom. So a regency council was set up consisting of prominent noblemen, but in which his mother, the dowager queen Ingeborg, also was an influential member. The regency council and the king's mother would continue to wield considerable power also long after Eric had grown up. And that was probably for the best. You see, beyond his age, another good reason for not letting young Eric, who was given the ordinal number two for those of you keeping track at home, take the reins on his own, was that he lacked his father's skills in education. When he became the sole king of Norway, Iceland, Greenland, the Faroe and Shetland and Orkney Islands, he couldn't even read or write, and he was definitely old enough to have sufficient time to acquire such basic skills. The Northern English so-called Lanarkos Chronicle goes even further, claiming that Eric wasn't just not particularly bright, but he had also been born a freak, more bare than human. The Chronicle tells us that when his father, King Magnus, had seen his newborn furry son, he had brought the baby to the church dedicated to St. Francis of Assisi in Bergen and placed the child on the altar there. He left the boy there overnight, and in the morning the baby had miraculously transformed into a normal-looking child. 
When he was 13 years old, Eric was married to Princess Margaret of Scotland, the daughter of Alexander III, to whom his father had handed over the Hebrides and the Isle of Man. The unfortunate bride died only two years later in childbirth, but the baby survived and she was given the name Margaret after her mother. When her grandfather, Alexander III, died in 1286, she was to become Queen of Scotland and was dispatched to her new kingdom when she was seven years old. But poor Margaret never reached Scotland. The young girl died shortly after she arrived in the Orkney Islands in September 1290. Her death ignited a complicated war of succession with no fewer than 13 different pretenders claiming the Scottish throne. Even King Eric made a botched attempt at claiming Scotland in the name of his dead daughter, but nothing came of that. Instead, Eric later married another Scottish lady, Isabel Bruce, the sister of the guy who eventually ended up on the Scottish throne, Robert the Bruce. Unlike his father, but much more like his grandfather, Eric II had an appetite for war, and one particular war would dominate much of Norwegian foreign policy under Eric II. Like Grandpa Håkon, Eric was keen to expand Norway southward at the expense of Denmark, and so he cashed in on the investment his grandfather Håkon had made by finding a Danish princess for Magnus. The Dowager Queen Ingeborg had still not seen a penny of her inheritance from her father, and whereas her husband, the peace-loving Magnus, hadn't insisted on the Danish king handing over large estates and vast sums of money, Eric decided it was time to push the issue. Or maybe it was Ingeborg herself doing the pushing. After all, she was a leading member of the Regency Council and a considerable power behind the throne. By now, Ingeborg's cousin was the King of Denmark, and in 1282 he had called a meeting of the realm at Newborg Castle. Ingeborg and the other three Plowpenny sisters decided that this was the time to insist on getting what was owed to them. They, or rather their representatives, described to the gathered Danish noblemen how these four poor girls had been robbed of their inheritance and that the only honourable thing to do would be to agree to their demands and give them their lands and their money. It must have been rather embarrassing for the king and his mother, Margaret, to sit there and listen, and I can only imagine that Black Greta felt vindicated in her opinion that there had been a mistake to let the four sisters out of Danish royal hands. Nonetheless, only one of the sisters, the one who had actually bothered to show up personally, actually got what she asked for. The claims of the others were rejected. In a way, this was good news for the Norwegians, because it gave them a pretext to go to war against Denmark. Still, actual hostilities didn't break out until the mid-1280s, following the murder of the King of Denmark. Don't worry, we'll get deeper into the murky waters of that political situation next time. Anyway, a group of Danish nobles who had been opposed to the king while he was alive were now accused of being responsible for the regicide, and they fled to Norway in 1287. These nobles were outlawed in Denmark, but granted asylum by King Eric, who even formed an alliance with them. And because of this, the war came to be known as the War of the Outlaws, instead of the War of the Inheritance, or something to that effect. The first act of hostility in the war came when the Danish outlaws marched across the border from Norway into northern Halland, and occupied it in the name of King Eric of Norway. Two years later, in 1289, Eric himself joined in the action when he took his formidable fleet and sailed to Denmark. On July 6, 1289, the fleet sailed into the Ersund Strait that today separates Denmark from Sweden, but back then both shores of the strait were in Danish hands. The following day, on July 7th, the Norwegians attacked and burned Helsingør, 
perhaps better known to you as Elsinore, as Shakespeare called the city in Hamlet. The fleet then continued south along the strait until it reached Copenhagen. They tried to storm that city as well, but the defenders managed to hold off the attack. Instead of getting bogged down in a siege, the fleet just moved on, attacking and burning several other towns and strongholds in the area before they returned to Norway again. But that wasn't the end of it. The following year, King Eric and the outlaws returned with the Norwegian fleet, pillaging and burning all over Denmark, but seemingly without any intention or plan to actually occupy any territory. Apparently, Eric and the outlaws just hoped that they'd be enough of a nuisance to the King of Denmark that he'd just give up and agree to their demands. He didn't though, so the war continued, and even though the Norwegians didn't make much of an effort to permanently hold any Danish soil, they seemed to have been in control of Danish waters. Eventually though, the two sides agreed to a ceasefire in 1295, but it would be several more years until a permanent peace could be established. As a part of the peace agreement, Denmark had to hand over the northern parts of Halland to Norway and the Norwegians received compensation for Queen Ingeborg's withheld inheritance. But Ingeborg herself was not to enjoy it. By the time the war ended, she had been dead for years and years already. She had in fact died already back in 1287, the year those Danish outlaws arrived in Norway. King Eric II died a few years after the war ended, in 1299 since his second marriage to Isabel Bruce hadn't resulted in any male heirs either, the crown now passed to his younger brother, Håkon, who became Håkon V. Håkon was the youngest surviving son of Magnus the Lawmender and Ingeborg of Denmark. Back in 1273, when his brother had been made co-king, their father wanted to make sure that there wouldn't be any problems with the succession. Clearly, this was something that worried Magnus, and for good reason, as anyone who's been paying attention will understand. So at the same time as Eric was made co-king, Håkon was also given a fancy title, but one that made it clear that he was not ever destined to rule. He became Duke of Norway, and as compensation for not having any chance whatsoever to ever becoming king, he was given a third of Norway as his dukedom to run as he saw fit, but always subordinate to the king. But that was then, and this was now. Håkon's brother was dead, and he hadn't managed to produce any sons before his death. So now Håkon was upgraded from duke to king after all. The major city of the dukedom Håkon had been given by his father was Oslo. And he spent a lot of time there, improving and expanding it. Bergen was the traditional seat of the king, but Håkon had taken a fancy to Oslo and wasn't particularly interested in moving west. After all, he had poured so much effort into improving his own city, and the weather was so miserable in Bergen, always rainy and grey, so he decided to rule Norway from Oslo instead. Who would stop him? He was the king. So during the reign of Håkon V, we see the beginning of a process that the center of Norway's power gradually moved from Bergen to Oslo, which of course is the capital of contemporary Norway. Beyond his favoring Oslo over Bergen, the most memorable thing about Håkon V is probably his struggle to keep the dynasty alive by producing a legitimate male heir. In 1295, Håkon got married for the first time. Since he wasn't expected to become king back then, he hadn't bothered to marry a princess, and so his first bride had only been the daughter of a French count. But this first wife died uh, already after two years, and since she hadn't given Håkon a son, he needed to remarry. 
This need for a son and heir became extra important once he ascended to the throne. If he were to die without a clear successor, civil war with various pretenders fighting for the crown was sure to break out again. So in 1299, the same year he became king, he married again. His second wife was called Euphemia, and she was the daughter of the Prince of Rügen, the island in the Baltic Sea that Bishop Absalon won for the Danes back in episode 39, Denmark Rises. Håkon and Euphemia only had one child, and unfortunately for the stable continuation of the dynasty, it was a girl. She was named Ingeborg after her grandmother, and was eventually married off to the younger brother of the King of Sweden. They in turn had a son, whose dramatic life will be covered in detail in a future episode later this year. Håkon did actually have an older child, another daughter, who had been born by a mistress before he was married the first time. Her name was Agnes Håkonsdotter, and she grew up at court and was given the title of princess. But she was born out of wedlock, and I'm sure I don't need to point out yet again that the church was fed up with Norwegian monarchs appointing illegitimate children as their heirs, so Agnes was pushed aside in favor of her younger sister Ingeborg. It was decided that Agnes's descendants would only inherit the throne if all of Ingeborg's descendants were to die, and Agnes's descendants would eventually come to play an important role in Norwegian politics, not least since Ingeborg's line would in fact die out. Anyway, enough of this dynastic foreshadowing already. Håkon V is still alive and kicking, and Håkon directed some of that kicking at the Norwegian nobility. He was successful in further strengthening the central power of the king at the expense of the aristocracy, making Norway a country where the king had relatively large resources at his disposal compared to the size of the country. Some of these resources he directed at Denmark. When he became king, he resumed hostilities against the Danes, and during his first decade on the throne, he was conducting a war against Denmark. But in 1309, the two sides finally signed a peace agreement that put an end to the Danish-Norwegian wars that had started with that dispute over his mother's inheritance. Håkon died in 1319, and since he didn't have any sons, the crown passed through his only legitimate child, Ingeborg, to her infant son, Magnus. Even though the law didn't allow for Ingeborg to be the reigning queen of Norway, she was allowed to assume the position of regent during her son's minority. As I mentioned a few moments ago, young Magnus had a dramatic life, and we'll cover it in depth in a future episode. But not next time. Next time, we'll see what's up in Denmark. Or perhaps rather, down. Last time we talked about Denmark, they were doing alright over there, expanding into Estonia and Germany. As you've probably understood already from the last two episodes, the situation in Denmark had deteriorated significantly since we last visited. The glory days of the golden age of the Valdemars were long gone. Next time, we'll take a closer look at what had gone wrong. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian History-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop that I talked about at the beginning of this episode. If you haven't already, I strongly recommend that you go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page to make sure you won't miss any Scandinavian history updates. 
If Twitter is more your thing, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.